single A&R guy on the planet is that you know is that the Womack and Womack uh, you know first yeah. gig at Hammersmith yeah. that was like in you know in the spring of 1984 uh, um, um, and um, Virgin in particular had mm. one that they right on the spot you can do we'll bring your family with us. I said I don't want to come here but anyway I, I came to England because I had spent my three years in more or less solitude in the yeah. mountains and you know, um, playing pioneer up there, and Sonny was still, my kid was starting to talk to trees. So <laughs> sometimes I, he still does. <laughs> I figured it was time to get out of there. So we went from upstate New York, you know, and uh, near Woodstock, to suddenly we were in we were in uh, Hempstead, you know, and nice. uh, I was in London, and I started working um, full time. I was making records with all these uh, young, young groups. And what I was doing is I'd, I'd, I'd work from Monday to Friday and make one song and figure out if they were worth carrying on with, you know, right. do the, do a, a track, do a one song and then do a 12 inch mix on Friday night right. and, and, and say, uh, on Saturday I'd call and say, yes, no, maybe. And it was always, always no, because right. they all were like these, it was a time when everyone was making these cosmetic little four-track demos sure. so these kids would punch in for everything yeah. and it would sound okay and then they'd say okay now you're gonna make a real record well you well, know what's what? the point yeah yeah I, it's you know hysterical I mean? so um i i uh I did any that. of those acts just out of curiosity that you maybe you pass on happen ironically oh no i thought ironically you said curiosity that i did a great oh curiosity killed, killed the, the cat. cat yeah so no there were a number of the, anybody that i passed on happened no Wait, you worked with you? I invented them. Yeah. Oh, of course. Wait, yeah. I'm getting. I might be getting them mixed up with someone else because I feel like I met those guys. I almost played bass. Could be. Yeah. I almost played Me bass with them. Yeah, yeah. I met them on a later record. Um, well, they. I. I invented them. You know, I. Yeah. I wanted to get something like that at the time. The only artists I really, really loved, Sade. And oh, I, yeah. I really love those records. Still do. I play them every day. And it was interesting. This was like I got the the t a test pressing of the Sade, because uh, um, Muff Winwood was the head of A and R at Columbia, a very good record man. He was Steve Winwood's older brother. And oh he, yeah, he yeah. was the bass player in the Spencer Davis group. Great, you know, yeah, a great guy, very smart, good, good A and R guy. So he gave me a, um, a test pressing of Sade as soon as I got there, and um, <laughs> it knocked me out. But I made a point of not uh, um, listening to any of those records because I didn't want any of that to end up on right. my own records. You right. know? So, um, having said that, I felt there was an opening for like um, sort of that kind of um, jazzy kind of uh, um, pop thing. Yeah. And uh, um, there was this band, Curiosity, and the, and the record company had a showcase and it was terrible. But yeah. the guy was a star. Yeah. The guy, the lead singer, had a good sound. And um, I said, okay. And so I decided to do four songs with them. And Sly and Robbie did a couple. Oh, yeah. And, uh, but I did, the, I did the hits. And we had four number one singles off that album. That's huge. Yeah. And um, I did a number of things in England. And then 
I was there about three or four months, and this A&R guy I met at um, a party, he said, I want you to come hear a band. He introduced himself, a guy named Simon Potts, very good A&R guy. I want you to come hear a band. I said, really? No one has asked me to hear a band. Right. You know, there were all yeah, these demos. Like, yeah. I said, okay. And he said, uh, um, okay. So he picked me up, and we went to hear this band out of Manchester. This was their first gig in London, and it was Simply Red. Mm. And... Um, Heard the guy sing. The band was terrible. Mm. Well, some of it was terrible. And I said, I thought to myself, this is why I came to England. This mm. guy's got it. Mm. He, had that, he had a sound. So I, I, I met with him immediately. And But they were doing like, it was like a soul review. Yeah. You know? That was real big from up north. I up mean, there, that was, it was a real going thing. On, yeah. And I, I said to him the first time I met him that... Um, you want to make these sort of Al Green like soul reviews, then you got the wrong boy. I've been there. I, that's that's mm. too close to where I come from. But if you want to do something that reflects the time you're in, mm. which is 1980, almost 85, it was 85. I said something that really speaks to your own generation. And and I remember him saying to me, "Well, how can you speak to my generation?" I said, "Watch me." Mm. <laughs> I'll speak to it in Yiddish. <laughs> <laughs> No, and we, I mean, made, and we made that that, that first record, and uh, it was enormous. And, yeah, um, really was. And uh, I yeah. remember when it came out, and, and you wouldn't, you know, you're there. You know, it comes out. It, did it come out in the states? Absolutely. Delayed, yeah, like really. it kind of really had like to happen six there. Later, yeah. Right. Yeah. My old man. I think I heard it on. At that point, it was probably VH1. You know, in the states, and then what would happen is certain records that they viewed were a little too sophisticated would be there, and then they just get so big they're on MTV. They're That's just right. on both. Yeah, right. And I remember my father was in what he ref would always refer to as when Thelonious Monk called his down period the unyears, <laughs> and he saw right. that record happen. And I got to tell you, and I am sure you know this because you loved each other, but he said, "Man, I am so happy for him." He said, "What?" Oh. Unbelievable. Mm. And you know, all this bullshit where people compete or whatever horseshit, it was so. I mean, I remember where I, you know, I remember being like 15, 16. I knew I was going to do music, but I wasn't, uh -huh. you know, I was maybe not even playing. And he was just like, man, he caught, he caught, he, he caught something here. Like, it was just, he was so happy. That's beautiful. Um, That's beautiful. Well, he told me that Nestle Erdogan told him um, about it and that he said this guy's the best singer in Europe, you know. Oh, yeah. And then Nestle sent me a beautiful letter. He asked your father for how to read it. Yeah, yeah. Sent me a handwritten letter letter about it and he was instrumental in getting it going. Yeah. And, uh, um, you know, we had a big run, man. And uh, he made the first album. It was enormous. And then came back to make the second album and he was already a prick, you know? And uh, uh, That's like a Broadway Danny Rose when he goes, I don't mean to badmouth the guy, you know, but he's a no good, low down louse. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, I, I yeah. mean, I, yeah, I've heard we, complicated things we about... We talk uh, for hours about what happens to people, yeah. but uh, I think I have it down. I think when they give you those gold records, you know, you put on the wall, platinum yeah. I think there's some kind of shit that comes off them, an alloy or something. <laughs> the more you it permeates the room, and you immediately catch this disease, and you become a fucking asshole, you know? Because, with very few exceptions, maybe some people have them when they wear masks. You're right, right. Or something when they or they don't sleep in the same room. No, it's in a yeah, it's in a, like a near the garage. Sleep. I have this one hanging up here because that's a simply red thing, and we sold three million records in England. Yeah, that's that? nine times platinum in England. Ten, I think. Ten, oh, is it? Oh, the four, first five, one in the six, 
Ten times platinum, yeah. That's the only one I keep up because it's what this house is built off. Of. <laughs> <laughs> if, uh, I take, if I take that record down, the house yeah, will fall yeah. apart. <laughs> but, um, so we made the first album and then they went out and then it was time to do the second one and he, it was like he invented music. You yeah, know? it's like, you know, Mozart meets Fellini meets... He knew everything know, uh, and... and uh, um, oh, that's um, what happened. So I, I, you know, my style, for what it's worth, has been always been very simple man i come mm. from a generation of guys that give it to you straight yeah so i i mean not so much my generation but the generation i come to was well, before, before me, yeah. all these guys were straight shooters whether they were tough guys or they were you know they were jazz musicians or gangsters the range is or not both well exactly there isn't that big a difference is that they gave it to you between the eyes and if you were if you were you know if you were okay to take it uh um strong enough to take it or, um, you know, accepting enough to listen to someone who knew what they were talking about, mm. then you'd take it straight on. So that's how I work. I don't have too much, um, I don't, do not work with kid gloves, as they say. No. So I put it right between the eyes in a, in a playful, wonderful sort of comedic way to people, but I tell mm. the truth. Yeah. So when you tell the truth to pop stars, you know, who are used to hearing, <laughs> used to hearing you know, they, they yeah. think that Rudyard Kipling told the truth, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, <laughs> <laughs> wow. You know, they think yeah. that Star Wars is the truth. Yes, they do. So uh, um, uh, it sometimes doesn't work. So when it came time to do the next album, yeah. and he played me songs, he said, people are, are um, loving it when we play it. I said, that's because there are two things. They paid the admission off the first album. Sure. Person, and they're all whacked on pills and shit. Yeah. I'm sorry about this, folks. There's a lot going it's on It's good. you Commissioner Gordon's office. Let's yeah. see what's going on. Okay. Yeah. Could be important. Don't worry. Um, okay. We'll, just, we'll take a break. I Maybe don't it's Sam Cook. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, you know, I've, I've definitely had my fair share of artists that, you know, not necessarily ones I've produced, but ones I've worked with where it's like, you know, you get, they get some success and it's, it's, you, it's almost as if you haven't met the person. I mean, well, it's, it's, you, you expect it and, um, yeah. you're never disappointed, man. Uh, um, uh, you know, and it's ironic because the first part of my life, recording life for 10 years, I had my own labels right? mm. and, um, I never ran into any of that. Because the people that, that I, you know, my long relationships with Massacre, I did 14 albums with the Crusaders. I did um, about eight or nine through my label, and then when they, when I closed my label, and they went with uh, MCA and, and uh, ABC, whatever sure. it was, um, they hired me. So they could have gotten out of their deal a long time before, and it wasn't, it, we, we had a good relationship. Yeah, Everybody why? knew what they were doing, you know, I knew, I knew what to do with them, and they, they respected that, so it was, it was always cool, man, and then I worked with a lot of, uh, I mean, six albums with B.B. King, right. you know, and I had a lot of multiple album relationships, right. and having said as bad as it was with Simply Red, I didn't do the second album. I thought you did. No, no, I did the, the first third, album, and, the and then third? I did the third, the fourth, and the fifth. Oh. And the, the third, the, the second album didn't do well. Yeah. And then they came back and said, would you work with um, the record company? So would you work with him again? I said, well, what does he think? He says he wants it. Yeah. So uh, um, so I stayed out on the second and came How, back for the Now, third. were you angry about the second one? Were you a little pissed after of course, creating? Of course. I was, man. You know, I was, uh, uh, I was, I was pissed. I was uh, disappointed. 
And also, you know, financially, you know, sure, it's it was a big like, bump. Yeah, it's a big, these are big selling records. Yeah. So I didn't feel, but then I wrote it off quick. I said, you know, this guy's, let him do what he wants to do. So I was shocked. Right. When I got the call, uh, my lawyer in England called and said, they want you to do it. I said, who's they? He says, the record company. I speak to the record, but he doesn't know how to talk to you. He's afraid to talk to you. I said, have him call me. So he yeah. calls and says, um, yeah, you're real want, hard to talk to. What's we want, that about? We want you to do it. I said, yeah. who's we? He says, um, the label and Mick. I said, well, uh, but there's one problem. He says, um, he wants to co-produce. Sure. I said, how do you feel about that? To the guy who was the head of the yeah. label. He said, we don't want him to do it. I said, you didn't tell him. Yeah. He said, I can't. Wow. I said, it's really? true story. Yeah. That he says, I can't. He said, why? He says, I just can't. He won't listen. But we have dinner with him. So um, I said, next time I'm in London, you know, he said, next time you're in London, will you have dinner with him? This is about three weeks later. So anyway, anyway, we met for dinner. I hadn't seen him. It was a very touchy relationship. Yeah, I can imagine. And uh, I said to him, listen, he's a cheapskate. I said, I'm buying dinner, but you ain't co-producing. <laughs> I had a whole plan. We were going to drink a little bit because I was back to drinking. I was going to hit him at the right moment. While we had our coats on, it was winter. It was January. It was yeah. cold in London. Yeah. We're taking our coats off. In the waiting, waiting to go in this busy restaurant, I said, "You know, you're buying dinner. I'm buying dinner, but you ain't co-producing. You ain't producing." <laughs> well, 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 we. I just want to learn. I said, "Then take notes." Yeah, exactly. Take notes. So uh, I got away with that one. Then the next album, he was the associate producer. Oh God, that was stars. That was enormous. Yeah, big. That was really big. And then after that, that was the biggest album. You know, it was like 11 million albums. And after that, you know, you figure, well, God, it should be easy. We came in for the next rocket. Not only was he the uh, producer, you know, uh, essentially, uh, he wanted me to do flaws and windows. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you said, and I don't do windows. I said, no. I don't do flaws and windows. Yeah, yeah. And it was a very contentious uh, um, time, that record. I wasn't happy with it. And uh, that was it. And I decided that's it. Life is too long, man. <laughs> <laughs> Life is long. Yeah. yeah. I, now, do you, are you still at this point? You're kind of living between the states. I and was England. living here. You were living, living here, here, and you're going yeah. back. We yeah. moved here. We only stayed in England for two years because we couldn't. Immigration was terrible. I couldn't yeah. get a long-term thing, and my kid was in school. They were giving me six months at a time. I said, "Fuck yeah. it." So we moved back to California. Yeah, I, um, in 1986, I was only there two years, but it really established me in, yeah. in making pop records. And uh, I'm, like I say, not moving an inch to the left or right. I, right. I made them, when I was in England for those next, well, it was 86 to 95, yeah, yeah. for nine years, I made the same kind of records I was making when I owned my label. I, wasn't, right. I, didn't, I just figured, you know, I could, I could do what I wanted to do here. And I made the whole change from... Um, I was one of the first guys to use computers with mixing. I, mm. I always, always um, welcomed any advancement in technology. Sure. Why? I had a line that guys used to laugh in the early days in the 70s when the little boxes were coming in and yeah. you know the guitar boxes and the boss ensembles and all yeah. these things. My line was always, when someone would wheel them in, they'd try them out on us, I'd say, um, um, let's use it. What does it do? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. What is it? Can I snort it? Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Well, let's use it. Was it do that in that order? Sure. So I, I was always there early on, and it's, I liked England because, um, for what the the artists 
lacked in, in uh, let's say, skill, they made up with enthusiasm. Yeah. The, the, the line I used to like was, we'll give it a go. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they always played over their heads. And to their credit, including Mick, who was terrific to work yeah. with at the beginning, they they responded to your input. And, um, you know... Listen, I, I knew what I was doing, man. I was, in, I was in a world where I understood what was going on. I had the qualifications to be in the, in the room. I never felt like I had to, uh, um, um, that I didn't deserve the right to say what I was saying. Right. First of all, they hire you and they, they, so because you know something. Right. So the A&R guys that I work with, I never met with any A&R guys. Right. I only met with the marketing guys. I wanted right. to know... Who's, who are we making this for? What do you want? What's the best right. thing that can happen to you on this record? <laughs> Not like, what are you looking for? You know, yeah. I, who, who are we selling it to? Right. So I didn't make a record. Records, as you know, you're a producer. I mean, no. there's 20 records you can make. Absolutely. You know, uh, and what is it What is it you're looking for? So it mm. wasn't like uh, trying to make it commercial, because I learned early on, commercial is a past tense word. Yeah. It's only commercial after Asters, someone buys it. Exactly. <clears throat> so all you can do is take your shot. But I always thought about someone somewhere sure. listening to it. In my earliest days, I used to think about pimps and hookers. Not Seriously, bad. Seriously, yeah, you know? absolutely. Like in, in, in dealers, and I would try well, out my tapes on this, on guys like that. The 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 you know you saw the Richard Pryor thing I worked on. The, he broke that record. Broke through pimps and hookers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> literally, it was like you exactly. know exactly. You did a great job on you. that. Also, Good I only job. I'm only bringing that up because there's literally a scene where they the guy the guy from the label or his manager, I think it was Sandy Gallon, was like. It was pimps and hookers. They're well, all was. completely celebrated. <clears throat> that was our audience with the Crusaders and Matt Scaler early on, particularly with the rhythm and blues. Is that who you were selling for? So I wasn't. Yeah. I wasn't trying to get a record to go on uh, um, top forty. Yeah. I was trying to get it on uh, below forty. <laughs> you know, not top bottom forty. <laughs> bottom man. forty. <clears throat> but that's where the night people were. So I would leave the studio sometime. Uh, um, um, and and uh, or not so much leave the studio. I would take acetates mm-hmm. to funny places and play them. I remember playing them in lots of houses late night. In in, in England or, no, or here? No, this is back here in the early oh, days. Okay. I would play them. This is the sixties. I would play them in someone's house. You know, fourteen in the morning, and and. Uh, uh, <laughs> And and uh, one speaker would be in one room and the other speaker yeah. would be in another room. But so you never heard things right. sound because nobody sits between the two speakers. You Taking know I mean? notes. Yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, I had a little technique. I would take an oratone, which for those of you who are listening to this will know was a little small speaker that emulated a radio speaker, mm-hmm. and that's this was in England. Yeah. And I would ask because England was very mono in those days. So American mm-hmm. records in the middle eighties. The big stereo, beautiful records. When they folded down the mono, they didn't sound right. The reverbs went away and everything. That's and one you don't of them. You live there. But my favorite records from the '80s are made in England, and they're the biggest, most stereo, most ornate. Yeah, because Peter Gabriel, they, yeah, like you know, the, exactly. And the reason is because they folded down into mono, and they made them that way. They heard them that way, and then opened them up. Uh, Not opened yeah, them up. Yeah, excuse yeah. me. No. In but, other words, they made them wide. And then they checked it by bringing them down. Right. So that's what the oratone was for. <clears throat> so I learned it from an English engineer. You take one oratone, you put it underneath the desk someplace in the room where you can't, you know, you don't even know where it is. Sure. And then you walk around the room and you hear it that way. That was your really? stereo mix. 
So the line of the stereo mixes were is because they worked in mono. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. Wow, that's yeah, spectacular. Yeah, and it was one speaker, because uh, one speaker mono on a hidden speaker. So I learned a lot in England. Sure. Computers were great. I said, my God, I don't have to have. You remember? You probably don't remember. We what? the records we made in the early multi-track records, the sixteen tracks. You needed three sets of hands. Oh no no yeah. My old man would always tell me he would have. Did you ever meet this guy, Jack Shaw? Of course. So you know Jack. Now, a, a, a completely terribly deformed, you know, yeah, wheelchair-bound right. guy. But he would help him mix. Yeah. He would just, they would just, and you know, on. three sets of hands on faders and whatever you printed, and that was it. That, that was, was it, and then yeah. you went straight over the two-track. One yeah. of my favorite moments is, is ever, we were, when I was doing this thing in Zaire, which became When We Were Kings, you know, the film. The, <laughs> the, the line of all time is yours. <clears throat> you have to fly in Zaire to get to Zaire. <laughs> yeah, well, when we were, when we were um, um, recruiting people to go, mm. we, we, we got the spinners, we came down to Philly. Mm. And uh, um, it might have even been your dad who set up a meeting with Gamble and Huff with Kenny and Leon. Oh, boy. And uh, it might have yeah. been him that did it. And we spent the day with them, and it was terrific because we wanted the OJs. And sure. So they were fantastic record producers. Oh, yeah. So in that afternoon, I got to talking to Kenny Gamble. I said, I've got to ask you, man, you know, like on Love Train, right, um, there's something you guys did that completely killed me, man. The intro of Love Train, if you play it, mm. and you'll mm. see there's a guitar, picking guitar that's brilliant, you know. And it goes from being very wet and reverb after two bars, after two bars in the intro, it goes completely dry right in your mm, face. Yeah, yeah. And it's fabulous. I don't know if you ever noticed it. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, probably not I'll notice the detail. To it, yeah. Of it. yeah. So it goes dry and it's there and it's like, what a, what a move, man, you know? Yeah. So I said, what was that? So he starts to laugh and he calls Leon over. He said, we were mixing it. And you know how it, how it is, you know, because it was still the 70s. And we had a few sets of hands, and we got to the fade of the thing. And you know how you add, you start to add a little, you're trying to make something happen a little bit on the fade. So we kept adding a little reverb to the guitar to get it to pump a little bit more. And um, and then we the mix wasn't perfect, it wasn't right. So we rolled back and did another one right away. And we hadn't reduced the pot with the reverb, so it started with the reverb set for the, 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 the ending, fade, the outro, yeah. the fade. And immediately... Sounded okay and pulled it down and it sounded all right and that was the rest of the mix was perfect and we went with it. I said, "Oh man, I thought maybe you had some mystical uh, um, idea and all it was was another accident like the ones I had made yeah, yeah, throughout yeah. the years." So that's what recording um, was and that's one of the things that's missing is totally. that by having too many opportunities to fix things mm -hmm. that aren't broken, yeah. but instead to to develop accidental ideas yeah. you know in fact that's very profound that comment well you know? yeah because in the end it's all an accident yeah well, well there's not a lot of room for accidents now i mean and if you look at it, it, it there's not a lot of room for accidents because if you're a label now and then we were talking about two separate things i'm going to say labels can't you know i always used to think of even when i signed a record deal i'm just like wow two things one this is the largest loan I'm ever going to take. Like, I got to pay back 88% through 12%. But the other thing was, they're all gambles. They're not, no one's, you can't gamble anymore because the, 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 the everything is imploded to the point where 
you know they can't they can't risk that kind of bread no, on no. still though on the on the on the thing with labels though that cracks me up is they don't understand that if you make a lot of small bets instead of five big ones I think you're ultimately better off. Well, that's how you know, it used and to that's be. where you'll get accidental sort of oh, success yeah. and creativity. Yeah, there wasn't that much pressure on anything, man. You, right. you know, you know, the records were, you know, when I first started, um, it was not uncommon to release three albums a year. Look at the Beatles, right. man. Yeah. You know, they were putting out three albums a year. Well, I remember when we did the Crusaders, we were putting out two, three a year. Yeah. And um, they all did okay. Right. And there was no pressure on them. I just came, I worked with an artist recently. Who waited? Uh, we had a great debut album, Jamie Cullen. We oh, had a great debut well, album. we worked with him together. Right. Right? Yeah, we did that Disney That's show. That's right, exactly. Yeah. We had a great debut album that yes, did you sensationally did. well. And then we made a second album that wasn't quite as strong. It still did okay, even the record business was starting to um, taper off. You know, this would have yeah. been around 2005 or six, But it did well. Yeah. And then... Um, he waited, I don't know, three or four, four yeah. years to make another record. I didn't make that one with him because right. I saw the, the pressure of success yeah. weighing on him. He's a lovely guy and, yeah. and he's a great artist, but he waited too long. And the, there, there was a line that started to happen right about that time. I think it was the Nora Jones, when Nora Jones had yeah. just happened. I'll never forget it. The line that was starting to develop is when someone would talk about their follow-up album and people were saying, oh, I have her album. Right. You dig? Yeah. I have her album. So. I have his album. Right. And that was it. He was at next. Yeah. And if you get the definitive work and you ain't made something that, that feels confident and spontaneous and you're sitting around thinking it's Beethoven's next symphony, you know that... You know, I think labels in a lot of... Uh, labels are definitely to be held a little responsible oh, for that. Oh, no, not entire, uh, you know, entirely responsible. Right, because, you know, you, you, you know look, at, look at the 90s. You know, you have like a, you know, and this is music's probably, you know, it's not your thing, but, you know, you have a group like Hootie and the Blowfish sell 20 million records, and yeah. then the next record's like 300,000. Yeah. yeah. I have their record, Alanis Morissette. Absolutely. I have her record. That's where it started. You're you know, right. Yeah. I, and I feel, and if you're going to sort of make a correlation between, like, you know, that and technology, it's also... The record business for me became two things then because when the CD was released and they understood the value of their catalog, artist development changed forever. Oh, entirely. They were they were living off it became a cash cow business. They yeah. were living off the past. Everyone was getting too fat. Executives were making fortunes. But they didn't know at the time that the catalog was going to be what it was. I I, I worked with an A and R guy at that time who unfortunately had some artists like you know. One, a couple artists actually died. It was really sad, actually. And he was put in the catalog. And he was beside himself. He, he said, that's it. My career's over. I'll never have a hit again. And I remember, it was, my old man was friends with him. And he said, you just bought yourself 20 extra years in this business. Mm -hmm. It's like the best thing that, you know, horrible that your two of your artists passed away. But, you you, you know, the catalog thing, that's it. It's the, it's the entire future of what you're going to do. Well, yeah, at that time. It, and, you know, now, and now look what happened. I mean, you know, so I, you know, I have a one-liner about what happened to the record business. It's pretty simple. If the record industry as a whole had bought Napster rather than suing it, yeah. uh, rather than suing kids yeah. and Napster... They bought that technology, then we wouldn't be sitting where we are now. But there was the, that's another whole story. Is that well, the, yeah, they but just it's... got sold to multinational corporations that didn't understand the philosophy of the businesses they had bought. It's as simple as that. If you had talked to Barry Gordy about that you can have a device 
uh, um, that can download something, he would have looked at you like, with welcome arms, he wouldn't have believed it. I know. We, we were talking about the Miles Davis mono box that just came out. Yeah. He bought it for $44. It was nine CDs. That's $5 a CD. If, the they had been, if they had been charging those kind of prices back in the 90s, you wouldn't have lost the entire industry. Not at all. But, I, you know, if you're going to bring up the, the tech companies, I think the tech companies, and Apple in, in particular, did ultimately the hippest thing that they could do for their business model, which was, hey, we're, we're looking at this industry. Music's always looked at, you know, where it's like they saw the disarray and the, the, the absolute lack of communication between the labels to agree on anything. Yeah, I mean, exactly. they don't agree with themselves within their, like, you know, Epic hates Columbia, yeah, you know, right. and that's all Sony. Apple said, well, we have this device. You're all in complete disarray. And you're going to be the conduit for people to buy our device. It's this. It's was so ingenious, but ultimately, it's all these companies basically used music to hip everyone to their devices and or their technology. But music ultimately, I think, is really is suffering right now. Ultimately, I think there'll be somewhere at some point some course correction. But I don't blame Apple. I know the no, I don't either. Story. Apple didn't want to be in the soft software business. They had no desire to have iTunes. They right. had the machine and the record companies didn't agree with them. They didn't see the future no. coming. So how about, you want to talk about what happened to the record business? They gave away 50% to Apple. They yeah. gave away 50% to Amazon. The yeah. idea that no label, no label had a retail presence on the internet is unbelievable, I man. Know. I agree. They're, they're dogs with fleas that sell shit on Amazon. Yeah. And nobody had anything. <laughs> so they gave, they gave it all up, man. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's, well, it's they, their really, own they fault. really did. It's their yeah. own fault. And the reason it's their own fault is because the people who ended up owning these companies didn't understand what they were built of, where they had come from. The record business until then had always embraced technology. In other words, they went from 78s to 45s right on through the cassettes. So suddenly and they're defending, they're defending um, um, the, old, the old technology. When mm -hmm. someone comes along with Napster, you say, oh, this is great, man, come along. Yeah. They were buying funeral parlors then. They were buying anything, <laughs> yeah. but they sued Napster. Yeah. And then iTunes comes along, and he reluctantly, uh, he was a genius. He, yeah. he reluctantly, I know the inside from sure. Warner Brothers, you couldn't get Warner Brothers. Someone mm -hmm. I won't mention was a very good friend of mine, was the president at the time. He saw the future coming, and he went to the upstairs people at Warner Brothers, said, leave it alone, it's no, fine. Nathan Shaken, you know, yeah. That's, that's like what the Jews said in Poland in 39. I hear there's something going on next door. Yeah. You know, those smart ones, that yeah. nobody, nobody knew it was coming, man. Right. And uh, it, you always got to stay ahead of it. The record business was always ahead of itself. When it started to um, lag, yeah. it ended. But this, listen, somehow I agree with you. Somehow we will survive, but I find I it, think it, uh, yeah. I find it very depressing for a young musician. Uh, I tell young musicians, because so, I have a young daughter, I'm always meeting kids who are on their way coming up. Uh, I say, you know, I can't paint you a nice picture here, man, because I don't know where you support yourself. I have, I give an example. You go to a restaurant, you have a beautiful dinner, and you thank the guy, and you walk out. Yeah. You don't pay the bill. Yeah. So that's what's happening with music. It's all cute that we can make it. Where do you sell it? Who buys it from you? Well, and what do they pay you for it? Yeah, well, try being a photographer. Try being a writer. Try being—it's—it's it's across the board in creativity, and I think that that's bred 
in a lot of ways out of Silicon Valley. Like this, not this, this concept that something you've created is owned by you is oh, really, it's really it's been disgusting. The, the copyright in the, is just absolutely disgusting. The value of copyright, I don't even want to go into it, except I'll just say that I had a, made a lot of records over the years. Yeah. I had what you would call a very successful large catalog. Yeah. It started in 1966, and I was making hits until 2005, 2006. Right. So okay, that's 40, 40 years, years right? of hits. You think I should be straight. My royalty stream is down 95%. Yeah, I know. You know, the checks I get now are ridiculous. I get my old man's royalties and admittedly didn't have the same amount of like hits, you know, spread out. Big catalog though. Big catalog, all in, mostly all in one place, a couple of hits, you know, some other labels. And it's funny, my brothers and I, really my brother Michael and I, we kind of joke about like, you know, well, what would he be doing right now? He'd be living with one of us because the royalties, you know, he didn't own publishing, he didn't own, you know, like, I never had any publishing. And this was supposed to be... But you owned uh, Masters at a certain point. No, no. Or you sold them because no, you had labels. Oh, yeah, I sold them to uh, oh, okay. get out of debt. No, I didn't own anything. Okay. I didn't really start to make any real big money until I went to Europe in the 80s and simply read in those days. But those really? were Masters. I made, you know, it's and me you made a boy. living? Oh, I made a very good yeah. living. I always lived. I've lived the same way up until yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> Since 1966, you know, yeah. I, I often would go into debt when I had my own labels and just show sure. off to pay off the bills. To me, yeah. to me, it was the, I couldn't believe it when I got paid by Minnie Ripperton's company, Epic. It's the first time I That's got That's who I'm working for right now. That's funny. That I'm doing a record for them. Yeah, whatever. You know. To do, it's the yeah. first time I had ever, I was in the business 10 years and I didn't know what an independent producer did. Right. And I called my lawyer. He said, he says, well, do you get a fee? And I said, what? So I get paid I, to do this? I couldn't believe it. And they give you, what, you know? And I, as sophisticated as I was, having been in it 10 years, to me, before that, for the first 10 years, I had to raise money to pay the bills. Right. But it was okay because I got to make the music I wanted. Right. And suddenly in 1975, I started getting paid. Right. And I couldn't believe it. I could not believe they were letting me play in a playpen and, uh, um, um, and got paid for it. Yeah. And that was fine. But I stopped when I saw that the dignity was being lost, which is perhaps the end of our interview, is that there was no longer any dignity attached to it. There were people that you were talking to who had no idea what they were talking about. Right, they, they didn't well, have basic language skills. They didn't even understand the fundamentals of what we, business we were in. Did you encounter this thing when I encountered it a little, where you would be speaking to someone on a label that had maybe four months ago had been working for Hershey's? Yeah, absolutely. Like that's the, like, is it, and that's are the you owner, speaking? that's the president. Yeah. <laughs> well, well I'm sorry, are you speaking to that or is it even just a... a speaking to that. Okay, yeah. Speaking that, to that. Was and, very uh, um, you know, to me, I've I've always been rough on amateurs, man. I don't want. Yeah, I'm you not, don't. I'm not interested in amateurs. Like uh, that's why, you know, to me, it's another thing that started to happen that was tragic to this business is this American Idol nonsense, where mm -hmm. is that people that can sing a little bit suddenly became artists right. and heroes. To me, they were amateurs. My little daughter was in school at the time. And everyone would come into school in the morning and talk about American Idol. Yeah, and she threw the greatest line. She'd tell everybody, we never watch it in our house. My dad hates amateurs. 
She was she was nine at the time, or eight, eight or nine years old, and she repeated each week rather than feeling bad yeah. that she was. My dad hates amateurs. Well, I do. I hate amateur pilots. Yeah. You know, amateur doctors. Amateur, amateur doctors are the amateur, worst. Amateur yeah. scientists. Amateur yeah. politicians. We have a lot of those, right? Yeah. Now. So and amateur musicians. You know who? Uh, um, you know. Today, someone wants to be, an, uh, they don't want to be a musician, they don't want to be an artist, they want to be a star. Give me yeah. a break, man. Yeah. You know, whereas, so again, I come from a tr tradition where there was a pecking order, and sure. you know that one, because yeah. you had to come up doing whatever you had to do to get to a room to make a, a recording. Yeah. So the fact that it's, it's everywhere, that, that recording is ubiquitous, I don't think is necessarily good. Uh, I think that you need to have had some chops to deserve to get into a studio yeah. to make a record, and then there was a sense of performance involved in it. You know what I mean? And uh, I also remember so clearly the '70s, you know, which to me was the golden age of recording. Mm -hmm. Is that every week there'd be three or four records that come out on a Tuesday? It would wipe you out. Right. They were so good. Right. Whether it was um, Earth, Wind, and Fire, or the Ohio Players, or the Doobie Brothers. <laughs> Or you know any of those white records? And Murray. And I mean, Murray. like these, just something that they like, all you know, were they're good. Really they well all made. Were really good. So if you were in the business, if you were you were a producer working on your records, it really drove you to do your best shit. Yeah. You know, so if I were out there right now, what would I be doing? Who would I be looking up to? I don't want to start to name names. No. Because people are going to say, wait a minute, he's a god. But Jay Z ain't no god to me, man. Right. Marvin Gaye was a god to me. Of course. You know what I mean? But I, uh, so it's not about that right now. No, it's not about I, that. I always remember hearing stories. My old man would tell me, like, just even just if you're. Hey, Jay Z should be. I'm sorry, man, but you should be glad that I used your name along Marvin Gaye. Yeah, actually. If you hear this shit. Yeah. Oh, he'll hear it now. Um, but I was going to say, like, I remember my dad telling me stories about, you know, because I never really caught this either. They would. Um, you know, he would be like the rascals would be in the studio talking about, hey, the Beatles just did this thing. We got to top them. That's right. That's you how know, it was. It was always was. like... That's how it was. And also, that's, 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 for the artist, every now. time... Here's a better, better example of it, which is what really was wonderful. I remember with every Crusader record, as we were fading it down... We all knew that next time we came back, which would be in a month or two, right? Right, because you we just were, really couldn't did. wait to get back in the room. In other words, right, is that everything that we'd learned on that session would 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 add to our uh, um, our toolbox when we came back yeah. the next time? And you got better and better and better. And the thing that really bothers me is that the level of excellence has been reduced to where it has been. And we're again that story I told you about going from. You know, um, one guy arranging everything back to one guy. Well, the same thing happened in, you know, we went from the 50s and the early 60s where the music was horrible. The late 50s had horrible sure, pop the, music. Sure, the pop music. Yeah, yeah. and uh, um, the Frankie Avalons. And well, the white covers of, you know, race records. Yeah, like all, all across all the that, board. We went from that into this sophisticated, fabulous um, world of pop music um, that had a long run to where we are now where... Um, that's why, you know, kids are listening to Spotify and they're discovering fabulous music. Oh, yeah. And unfortunately, none of it was made this year. <laughs> so. But you know what? In all fairness, 
It, Which I'm not involved in all fairness. <laughs> fair enough. Let's, but, get, let's, yeah. get, fair enough, let's get one good trick. For anybody who listened to this, you know, Adam Dawn is one of my favorite people, and I don't need to be fair around him. That's, so that, and he, that's got the, he got the truth out of me, man. I, I really did. Lies, man. You know? But you know what? It's not just music. It's food. It's the air. Absolutely. It really is, you know, and I think... Is this evolution, is a, man? It's Do we get worse? It's devolution. <laughs> yeah, maybe they, maybe that's what it's all... No, I agree completely. Everywhere mm. you look, uh, other than cable television. I like cable television. <laughs> you know, I like... I like the, the only thing I like at the moment is Breaking Bad. Oh, uh, well, my, one of my closest friends is the composer. What's his uh, name? Dave Porter. Oh yeah, I see and, oh, and he will be interviewed on this show as well. A very, yeah. very dear friend of mine. I worked on. I actually worked on it this year. He had me play bass on a couple things. It's terrific. The it's scene. just. I'm not finished yet. Oh, so me neither. No, yeah, I'm in the third season. That's where we are. Last, yeah, I started last week. I just think it's fan. Fantastic, man. Boardwalk Empire. In the, Boardwalk Empire. Yeah, not to me. Oh, uh, really? Nowhere near. Come on, okay, man. Wait a minute. Now I'm not going to leave, I'm gonna leave this interview. It's not the Rascals I'm and the Beatles, leave man. I'm going to this interview right. here, right? All right. Really? <laughs> I made a lot of rhythm and blues records. Some, yeah. of my best friend, some of my best friends are Africans, right? Yeah. Boardwalk Empire's portrayal of black people is disgusting. Wow. All right. Come really? on, man. Did you ever meet anybody like I have those? friends on the show. Did I have black friends on the show. Did you ever meet any characters feel... that don't feel like because they're getting paid? Well, yeah, maybe so. No, it's horrible. But you know Chalky White is from The Wire. Did you watch The Wire? I'm not talking about The, the Wire. Is... I'm not talking about <laughs> the actors. I'm talking yeah. about the plot. The plot. Give me a break, man. You know what I mean? These people never existed anywhere. You know what I mean? But that's So it's not the All same right. league. I'm not the same league. But, All right. but anyway, I love that. It's the only thing in entertainment wow. right now wow. that I really like. That's what we'll Dave will be And I'm not looking that. forward to seeing the Coen Brothers movie because uh -huh. I don't like folk music. <laughs> uh, Stuart Levine, my man. <laughs> don't use the last couple of it. Use whatever the fuck you want.